Hey everybody, Chibi here. Before we get into today's conversation, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for showing us that you care about poetry and getting to know more poets across this country. If you've liked what you've heard so far, please make sure to hit that subscribe button, share these episodes, tell a friend, rate and review us wherever you can. And if you want to know more about the things and the initiatives that we are putting in place, you can look us up on Facebook at The Blah Poetry Spot. That is B-L-A-H, The Blah Poetry Spot on Facebook or Write Art Out on Instagram. That's W-R-I-T-E-A-R-T-O-U-T, Write Art Out. Thank you so much, and without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another edition of the Blah Poetry Spot Presents words and shit, an intimate um, performance and conversation with a different poet so that you can get to know the person behind the poetry. I'd like to welcome all the babies and gentle femmes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys, girls, everything in between for what, coming in this weekend and spending your Thursday evening with us. My name is Chibi. I'm one of your hosts. I'm so excited to be part, uh, be here with you and be part of this conversation um, my co-host this week, as always, is the illustrious taco poet of Texas. That would be Eddie Vega. Eddie, where are you at today? There I am, live. And live in and in person. With a collared shirt, no less. With a collared shirt, no less, exactly. Because I have so, so few opportunities to wear a collared shirt uh, I might unbutton it a little more Laredo style, like I see you've got doing. Uh huh. You know, uh, I don't SIs, know. The I taco might, meat. I try that a little bit. Maybe <laughs> pop these two buttons and then put the sides out. Yes. Yes, I hacemos, way. Yeah, yeah, I get you. Any excuse to dress up these days is fantastic. At least um, from the waist up. At least from, yeah, I'm totally wearing shorts with this button-down shirt. Uh, anywho, so, uh, so let's talk about, we have a really uh, special guest. I think this is the furthest that we've had someone, you know, someone that does not live, you know, close to San Antonio. Um, I think this is the furthest. I think before this probably ed mayberry in los angeles but this one comes from even further who do we have on our show today the great northwest which is of course we're talking about the actual great northwest not the that neighborhood over there in san antonio like that culebra tesla area no we're actually talking about the real one we've got roxy jane allen a queer non-binary poet community and body positive activist model makeup artist burlesque dancer sex worker stylist barber nail tech esthetician and recovering alcoholic, she does it or doesn't do it all. A seven-time Eugene Poetry Slam team champion, team member, five-time champion, uses comedy and wit to disarm their listeners and their sincerity and vulnerability and drive their truth deep. Uh, they've been performing spoken word for the past 18 years, helping facilitate the Eugene Poetry Slam for the past 12. And I did a deep dive. I looked at like just about every video that the Eugene Poetry <laughs> Slam has out there. I saw their venue. It's a bookstore. It looks really cool. And I noticed that some of the books on the on the shelf kept like disappearing and then others would appear. So it's really authentic. It is not like some sort of backdrop that they made up. No, this is real. <laughs> There's no virtual Zoom background. Not a, not a virtual, virtual thing. So we are honored to have with us 
Roxy Allen. Roxy Allen. Hi, friends. How are you, gorgeous? I am so good. Yeah. I am so good. Medium embarrassed about Eddie's deep dive. Uh, <laughs> you know. The, the internet. It's out there. Apparently it is. Yeah. Turns out the kids still use it. Yeah, you yes. can't hide anything these days. Apparently yeah. Donald Trump doesn't know that, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a whole, out. that's a whole nother conversation. With that being said, Eddie and I are going to nix on out of here and just give you the floor uh, so that you can share some amazing poetry and kick us off and then we'll be back and we'll have a conversation. Okay, okay. Uh, Well, thank you all for this awesome spot and I'm just gonna get after it. Um, Content warning uh, for, uh, content warning for uh, incest and abuse. You've got to walk that lonesome valley. You've got to walk it by yourself. Oh, nobody else can walk it for you. I'm not so scared of my mother dying as I am of losing her voice. When I hated every fiber of her being for not knowing what he would do to me at night, I still loved her voice. When I was too full of rage to even let her touch me, I could sit in church on Sunday and feel the velvety warmth of her alto as it wrapped around me in the pew. As I got older, and those fresh wounds turned to old scars that are barely even visible. I was finally able to sing with her and I have never heard my own voice so strong, supported by hers. The way light brushstrokes are made lighter by the darker ones below them. It was the perfect dance. High notes and low, held notes and trills, literal harmony. And yet, over time, the steps are off. I'm beginning to hear age tightening her range. Too many cigarettes have pierced holes in her vibrato and it terrifies me. I can't turn on my car radio or open a hymnal without hearing her voice in the back of my mind. And I am paralyzed by the thought of losing that voice. Dr. Jane Allen did not supervise school trips. She did not go to PTA dinners. There was one choir trip in my entire career that she actually came to and everyone was mesmerized by the sound of her voice. Stephanie Chrissy, the coolest girl to ever walk the halls of Holy Trinity Episcopal Academy, put aside all of that cool just to ask her, how do you do it? How do you just find harmony? And she laughed and said, oh honey, you just find a hole and fill it with your voice. And like we all do when we spend our youth angry at people who did nothing wrong for things that are not their fault, 
I would give anything to have those Sundays back. I would run up to her at her place in church and I would sing with every fiber of my being. I would sing hard enough to take back all the wasted words and the hate and the hurt. I would sing so hard that the stained glass windows would shoot out like kaleidoscope fireworks made of Jesus and St. Peter. But I would keep on singing until the walls shook and gave way, leaving an arc-like carcass for the weekly world news to report on. But I would keep on singing. And the the terrified congregation would flee, thinking that maybe the kingdom had finally come and they might like Judaism better. And the minister would shoot the consecrated wine like a frat boy doing a keg stand before fleeing just like his flock. But I would keep on singing through the last beat of the last note when we would both be hit by a wall of silence. Which would be my way of telling her, I'm trying now, Mama. And her way of telling me, oh, honey, everything comes to an end. Thank you. Uh, content warning, uh, incest. 10 things that you should know about me, Roxy Jane Allen. One, I am wildly lactose intolerant. Two, that's never stopped me from fucking up some nachos or a burrito or even like gas station chili cheese fries. Three, that means that at any given point, I could shit myself or have some real scary farts at the very least. Four, I'm also an incest survivor. Five, who still loves their brother. Six, I'm not a hero. Seven, and I don't think he's a villain. Eight, both just people who made choices. Nine, sometimes good people, the people we love, they make shitty choices. 10. After 20 years of therapy, pizza is a lot more likely to fuck up my day than a flashback. But they are always at the back of my mind. Thank you. Uh, this bad boy, I'm going to pull up on my phone because I'm older than I look, and my memory's not what it used to be. Uh, content warning uh, for intimate partner violence. What do you remember is such a different question than what happened. We remember what we feel. I guess that's why eight years later, I still call what he did to me an accident. Why when I think of him, I don't think of trips to the hospital, his hands, or my broken teeth swallowed. When I think of him even now, I can't help but remember his smile. And what is a smile if not a warning, a predator baring his teeth, showing how easily, how fully he can consume you? And what do we call 
smiling often and easily, if not charmed. The ability to make prey believe they were asking for it in the first place. It's funny how memory can slip right through your hands like water or carve through a mountain and reshape the topography of our lives. I told the doctors I fell. I still call it an accident, but I'm not sure if I'm talking about what he did or loving him despite it. That morning in April is stored in every cell of my body, but if you ask me about it, I will lie. Every red blood vessel that wished my heart were smarter, the marrow that knew we were not ready to leave yet, and the spongy bone that eventually gave way, knowing we didn't want to. In the movies, they leave after the first time, but this wasn't the first time. And I went back home with him in my wheelchair, both legs in casts, and I stayed. I stayed for 22 more days. The night I left, I dreamt about the crack, the percussive boom of bone snapping, a bat cracking me open like a pinata, spilling all of my secrets on the ground and me, a sticky-handed child, trying feverishly to scoop them all up. It's fine, I'm fine, it was an accident. I fell in my dream. The warmth of my own blood felt so comforting. When you are freezing, cutting yourself open for warmth only seems logical. I don't remember much of the leaving, but I do remember the weight of staying gone, how it sat on my chest like a schoolyard bully telling me to stop hitting myself. The spiral fractures around each ankle created staircases of brokenness, staircases I kept climbing in my mind, replaying everything. Even now, some nights when I climb those staircases, I can convince myself it was my fault. I can see his toothy, toothy grin, a flashbulb smile illuminating nothing, climbing higher, going round and round those stairs. I miss the pieces of me still lodged in his teeth entirely. I wonder how long before I forget how sharp those teeth were how insatiable his hungry was, how determined he was to make a meal out of me, and how quick I was to apologize for not being enough of a meal. <sighs> Content warning in this next piece uh, also deals with the aftermath of domestic violence. And this will be, yeah, this will be my last piece. And then we'll get to talk about words and shit. Um, okay. It gives me too much credit to say that I left my fiance when I could not stand. As if I actually believed a different life were possible. A different me were possible. That I was capable of standing, let alone standing up. It is more accurate to say that my mother, just as she had when I was a baby, stood behind me and taught me how to walk for the second time, just to watch me walk away from that which did not serve me. My mother, 
who I have only ever seen. Be ice, form glacier, sink ship, take aim at the unsinkable and square her shoulders for impact. That same woman saw my sinking and melted herself to save me, brought a holy flood just to lift me up carried me out of the house he and I pretended in and floated me to the safety of her shores. She defrosted her own ice caps so that I would never know thirst, never confuse dehydration with hunger for him. But I am not my mother. Unlike a storm or a flood, there's no specific event that signifies the beginning or end of a drought. It just gets drier and hotter until things start dying. Often, droughts are described by what went extinct during them. How much of me died that year? How much became endangered in the five previous? I can't tell you if it was because of the pain, the screws, the broken bones, leaving the man I loved or realizing I should have been strong enough to leave a long time ago. My desert lizard brain stuck on repeat. But every single night after that first flood carried me home, there would be this point where my own drought was too much and I could do nothing but weep. A desert crying over their own inhospitable conditions. And this is when the glacier beside me would get to work. Every night, my Arctic mother would start global warming all over again, melt herself down to my boiling point. She would trickle her fingers ever so slightly up and down my fork. Rivulets of a mother's love tamping my dust down, washing me clean, baptizing me in the fresh waters of her holy. She would keep doing this, the fingers of her rivers holding my hands and wiping my tears until I fell asleep. She did this every night for two months. It was a tenderness I was unaware my mother possessed. I have never called her selfless, would never think to. And yet here she was changing her states of matter to remind me how very much I did. I don't know if I'm remembering her or my childhood wrong, but it is a softness I have not seen since. Perhaps because I have not needed it since. How like a mother to be exactly what we need, such fluid grace. And how like a child to want more, such an unquenchable thirst. Thank y'all for giving me some time to say some stuff. Roxy Allen, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice clap track. You know, we try, we try. We're doing what we can in this virtual world these days. Ah, so, um, I mean, clearly apparent by your work, like we've got some heavy topics to, to, to talk about today and to navigate through, but before we want to get, we, before we get into that, I just want to take us back to when you and I first met at a nationals, uh, and we bonded over the fact that we both worked for Mac Yep. at some point in time. Yes. Because neither of us do anymore. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just, you know, I want, I want to hear, I want to hear your side, you know, as a fellow makeup artist, like what, uh, you know, what drew you to, to the makeup industry and your journey through, through Mac and the cosmetics industry and what's that done for you in your life? 
because you look fabulous. That wing liner's on point. Well, thank you. Um, you know, it's really funny. Um, there are almost every job that I have had in my life, even though they've been different, the core um, of them has been the same that I just want to tell people that they're, they're already enough. Like whoever the hell you are, can I swear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called oh, words great. and shit. Okay. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> whoever the fuck you are, you are enough. Uh, capitalism, white supremacy, it's all founded on us believing that fundamentally who we are is not good enough. And that's bullshit. Um, so when I started with Mac, I really wanted to be a makeup artist. I love color. I love beautiful things, but I genuinely thought that I wouldn't get hired um, because I was and am fat. Um, and I didn't see myself at the time as a as a pretty enough person uh, because I very much still saw beauty as reserved for like this upper echelon. And I clearly was not that. Um, now it's not what I think, but at the time it was kind of like, well, this is really good hourly pay. And I think that I might be able to do this. So I'm just gonna try and like have an interview. And it's so funny, the manage the counter manager who hired me when she hired me, um, cause I was like nervous and I was like, well, I'm not a real professional and I'm, I'm not an esthetician and I don't know if I can do this. And she just was like, look, uh, we can all learn to grow. I'm not hiring you because you're a good artist. I'm <laughs> hiring you cause you're a good person. And mm -hmm. it, like to my insecure, very young 20 something brain, I was like, she thinks I'm a bad artist. <laughs> uh, that's, that wasn't it at all. It, it was the, the personhood and, and the beauty of continuing to do the things that speak to your heart is that I still work with her. However, um, she is also an instructor. Uh, she's a professor at the University of Oregon, and she's also one of the instructors at the Eugene Ballet Academy. Mm. And the last two pieces that I wrote last year, um, she... Um, she and I worked together in collaboration and uh, she choreographed uh, two, con three, three actually contemporary pieces to those poems. Um, that it just is like the amazing way that the world comes back around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I totally understand wh where she was coming from because like I ended up being a manager and then a trainer and I would always have conversations with other managers. Like I, I can teach people to do makeup I can't teach people to be nice and to be good people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's one of those things where it's like you truly, you know, like in that kind of industry, they call it a service industry for a reason. Like, you really just have to have this heart of giving, you know? And uh, we do that as makeup artists, bring out the best in people every day. And I think you give a lot of yourself in your performances, uh, which, is, which is a beautiful thing. It just speaks to that, how you have this just natural tendency to just put yourself out there for other people, you know, which is fantastic. Uh, well, it's, it was hard one. I spent a lot of my life when you feel like you're not good enough, you know, we do so many things to hide that. Right. Um, and that's a big part. I mean, for me, I drank for years and years and now I'm in recovery, but that was a big, that was a big part of it for me. And actually I used to be embarrassed to say that I used to work for Mac because I 
which is no shade to the company, but I was laid off in 2009. And uh, the, the economy was like kind of shitty, but also my performance was kind of up and down. And uh, it was a rough time in my life. And it kind of was like, well, we had to make these cuts and this last person, sometimes they made their, sometimes they made their AUS, sometimes they didn't, you yeah. know, um, and last uh, in first out. <laughs> yeah. And I got so like, I thought that that was such a marker of who I am. Like I was a mm -hmm. failure because I was laid off and, uh, looking at it now, I wouldn't do a fucking thing different. Mm -hmm. Uh, the best days that I had were not when I sold hundreds of dollars of makeup. It mm -hmm. was, um, there's this one girl that I remember that, um, uh, she was visually impaired and she wanted to know how it felt to wear red lipstick. Uh, and it's a lot harder to find the right shade for someone when they can't see themselves, mm -hmm. but like, that's one of the best experiences of my life. Yeah. And I think about it a lot that like, how things feel regardless of how they look often matters more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's all in how you, it's that Maya Angelou quote, right? That, you know, people remember how you made them feel more than what you say or what you, what you did. You know, I got laid off last July and it's been debilitating, but same, I wouldn't change those last nine years, you know, like meant so much in the way that we, we help people and we touch people and help them feel like so much more than they ever thought they could, even if it's just a shade of lipstick or a little concealer or holy shit, my brows are even for the first time in my life, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. it really is. It's, it's just a, making people feel good is like, mm -hmm. and feel good about what they see in the mouth, in, in the mirror, in a world that's constantly trying to tell us, hey, feel like shit, feel like shit. It, mm -hmm. it really is revolutionary. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get that out of the way because I know like Eddie can't join the makeup conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so just throwing that out there. Or um, the conversation for that matter. Or the Mac conversation. Yeah. You know, which, I you know, know again, no that's about as far as I go. And I did, you know, I, I don't know if I've told you this trivia, but like when I was, uh, I was in Rome and uh, there was uh, a Mac store in Rome, but not just a store. They had like a, a sign on the street, like a, a street sign, it looked like a street sign, but not, you know, not on the building, but like a street sign. And it said Mac, and I took a picture of it and I meant to show it to you, uh, but I think I haven't. Uh, so no. at some point, and now it's kind of like late, like I can't, <laughs> you know, no, no tea, no shade towards the company, you know, like whatever happened, happened. I still, you know, like I love the work that they do. They do a lot of great work, you know, so I still respect them as a brand and which is probably why I haven't gone back into cosmetics because there's no other brand out there that I would really want to work for, you know, so, uh, so again, it's not a sensitive subject. We're cool. <laughs> Moving on. You the mentioned the subjects, maybe perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but you, you mentioned uh, about in, in that hiring process, um, you thought that they weren't looking for, for someone of a certain size or a certain uh, a look, uh, and I'm thinking about, um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that little video that James Corden did 
responding to Bill Maher? Oh, I've heard of it, but I've not seen it. Oh, you have. To, I think, I mean. Okay. Um, I saw it like three times and I cried four, I think. Because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've always dealt with like some issues of, you know, weight issues uh, for a long time going. And that's what, one of the things that he talks about is like the, this, um, we're always on a diet. We're always going back. We lose and we get back to it, uh, to the original weight. Uh, my, my favorite is when, uh, or not favorite, I guess, um, when you're at a certain, I was at a certain weight once, um, and then I got 30 pounds heavier. I lost 30 pounds after that. And people said, oh, you look so good. And I'm thinking, this is how I looked like six months ago. You wouldn't, you didn't say shit back then. So like, ah! you know, um, and, and I think, you know, there, there's, there, I've got a note here about uh, a fat phobia uh, that exists out there. Um, what's, what's been, what, what's your experience with that, uh, that term, I guess? Um, so, uh, I mean, really my whole life, uh, because I'm five, nine and like, so like, uh, I'm five, nine, I'm size 22. Um, I was a 36 triple D when I was 11. Like I have, like, <laughs> I have been living this my whole life. Um, and so now I have better language for it. And now I can understand, um, that fat phobia is is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. It is something that I uh, experience, and it's something that, of course, because of the society that we live in, I have internalized. But it's really um, been an interesting thread um, for me. The reason why I got really got into um, modeling was because of fat phobia, because I didn't see people who looked like me. And specifically, you know, we might see like the, the, the body positivity movement has really fallen short in a number of different ways because we include like, you, we have tokens as opposed to just like, well, no, motherfucker, everybody's beautiful. Like that's, you know, that's where it falls short. And um, we can now we, because it's like, People think that like, oh, fat people, fat people can be beautiful too, but there's still a limitation of seeing fat people as sexy that like somehow that's, that's wrong or that's a faux pas. Um, and so for me doing modeling and specifically like there's, um, one, um, adult store that I, I model for in, um, in Eugene, uh, that they, you know, they asked me to model because for their website, rather than the standard person who is on the catalog, they wanted to have real people, real bodies in what's on their website. And I am very real. Um, and there is a power that comes from claiming not just your own sexuality for yourself, but in, in a public way, in a, I'm not going to be ashamed about this. I'm not going to like, it's not gross. People have sex. People are sexy. That's a real thing that exists. And so for you to not want to hear about it because I'm fat, that's not a me thing. That's a you thing. Because mm -hmm. uh, there's plenty of people interested. 
<laughs> yeah, it reminds me a lot about the mentality that you kind of see in in burlesque circuits these days, where it is very much about like every body size, shape, you know, color, etc., is welcome, and we celebrate them for what they are, rather than trying to pigeonhole them into, you know, for for lack of a better example, you know, a Dita Von Teese hourglass sort of shape. You know, like uh, I just off the top of my head, I think of uh, Fat Bottom Burlesques in Austin, that is like, they are only plus size dancers because they are celebrating like, not only are we plus size, but we're sexy and you're going you're gonna like it in person, yep. you know? And kind of putting that to, sh to, to the side. Yeah. It is interesting though, that it's like, um, I'm glad that you brought that up, Eddie, because we have this idea that like, um, you know, we get to a certain point and like, well, if I'm just like woke enough about this, then I'm not going to be affected by it anymore. And that's not accurate. And like, um, I, um, am in this relationship with this person that I very much love and it is hard for me to, um, fathom that they are really as attracted to me as they say they are. Uh, and when I get stuck in that, I'm like, wait a minute. Okay. No, that's, that's not my thought. That is something else that's been put in there. That is like my trauma telling me that I deserve garbage. Um, it's not, it's not real. Um, but it, 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 it's insidious, right? Because it's, it's insidious, but it's also like constantly in our faces. Right. And, and there, there's a, I'm thinking of a poem by Lady Tess. I don't know if you're familiar with Lady Tess. Yes. Uh, Tess has that one poem uh, about the chubby chaser. Uh, about being being fetishized. Like at first she's like, oh, this is cool. He's really into me. And then she realizes, nah, he's not into me. He's got a fetish, you know? It's not about me. Yeah, and, that, and it's also, this is like a really like a continued bone to pick for me uh, in the adult entertainment industry that like if you just Google like BBWs or something like that, uh, anything that you find with a fat femme is going to be either fetishizing their, it's like them having sex and then eating cake or them having sex while eating cake. And like, wow, that's a real limited imagination. That is just not, yeah. Um, yeah. For anyone so can, for anyone that doesn't know, can we clarify what BBW means? Yeah, uh, it is, it's an acronym that stands for big, beautiful women. Mm -hmm. um, being non-binary, and a femme, it's kind of a like weird thing that I fit into, but not. Um, but there's like not yet an acronym that's like <laughs> BBMB. Non binary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but it's kind of uh, this specific genre um, for folks who, who do like fat femmes and women. So you do a lot of work, uh, you, you're pretty open about your work in the sex industry, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, with labeling yourself as a sex worker. Uh, again, for anyone who is unfamiliar, I mean, what does that term mean? What is, what is, let's start there and then we'll yeah. start to unravel the onion that is sex workers. Definitely, definitely. Um, so technically anything where goods are services, goods or services are exchanged for uh, time or affection is sex work. Uh, so in Oregon, housewives are sex workers. Mm, okay. So 
like <laughs> I was about to say going on a date might be sex working <laughs> yeah and, and and it's also something too that people don't realize that there is like a I mean there's a lot of different types of sex work and one of the reasons why I talk about it is because it's really important that we I mean I could talk for hours about it but but people don't have a good idea of what sex work is mm. so like um when I told my mom that I was a sex worker, sometimes I have really bad timing and it was at Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cause I was like, yeah, sure. Today's great. Uh, and uh, we were kind of talking about like horphobia and, uh, and kind of things of that nature. And I was like, you know, like getting on my soapbox and I was like, well, mama, I'm a sex worker. Um, and she was like, what does that even mean? Um, and I was like, well, like I, <laughs> Like I, I make, I receive money for these pictures that exist of me on the internet. I have modeled for these companies on the internet. Um, and she was like, well, let me see what that is. Uh, and so <laughs> it, like, I, like I showed her some of my photos and she was like, oh, well, that's not pornography. That's just very, very beautiful adult entertainment. Mm. And I was like, okay, we're splitting hairs here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like. Uh, so I think it's kind of a really umbrella term, but it encompasses uh, escorts, it encompasses uh, prostitutes, it encompasses strippers, it encompasses uh, cam girls, it encompasses um, any model that has had um, their top off or more. So technically that actually includes most models. Mm -hmm. um, and it also um, includes uh, sugar babies. So anyone who, um, really that broad description of exchanging time or affection for goods, services, money. Yeah. I really love that you, you, you bring that to life because, um, I'm just assuming here, but when most people think of sex workers, they immediately think prostitutes and nothing else, right? That's like yeah. the one term. Uh, but there's so much more to it, you know, and I love that you mentioned that it's not just, it isn't just necessarily sexual acts, it's time and affection, you know? Yeah, it is. And I think it's something too that like, um, there's an emerging field of what's called sexual doulas that kind of, um, what falls into that are folks who uh, have difficulty with intimacy uh, like if you think about at a base level, if you are hiring a sex worker, um, you are hiring someone who is going to respectfully hold the exact boundaries of the space that you need for the time that you pay for it. Uh, and we have a better understanding of consent than most folks. <laughs> um, and um, I... I think it's important that we not vilify or kind of prioritize one type of sex work over the other because all sex work is valid um, and all of it should be decriminalized um, because this idea that it is somehow bad or wrong or a crime to, to, to from two consenting adults like seek a person out for whatever that thing is whether it's that like you just really want to see very nice uh porn that's directly catered to exactly what you want um or you want to sext with someone um or even if you're like 
even if you just want to talk to someone on the phone, especially in kind of the pandemic is really driving home. We are so lonely. We are so touch starved. Um, and there's this idea of like sex workers just trying to like get money and be gone. Now, do I enjoy getting paid? Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I think it's it's really important to kind of, it's a nuanced and layered thing. And when we reduce something to what we see in the movies or like Pretty Woman, that's, I mean, technically that falls under the umbrella of sex work, but that's not all sex work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think at this point now, most non-men that are between 18 and 25 have done some form of sex work. Uh, even if it's just that they paid for the date and there was some intimacy afterwards, technically that counts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I immediately think of other ways that you could, you know, classify that in terms of like, say someone who's possibly autistic and just needs someone to like hold them for a few hours, you know, like that's a, yeah. that's a service that a sex worker could provide that is not necessarily sexual, but is something that is intimate and personal, you know? All of my in-person clients have been uh, autistic virgins that have been starved for intimacy, um, but don't know how to ask and want mm -hmm. it to be in a very controlled manner mm -hmm. that they are very clear about kind of the, the rules and boundaries of. Mm -hmm. um, because for a lot of people, man, just sitting next to someone that you're attracted to can be like, no! you know overwhelming yeah. and too much um but a, a lot of what i do is just um uh it's either just being hot on the internet uh or just talking to people mm -hmm. it can be as simple as that i love it yeah there was there was something um about oh gosh do you it seems like society hasn't really caught up to the definition of sex work yes um what about legal like like law wise like has that definitely not caught up is that on its way going at all or is is that even further back than society i feel like it's even further back than society there are some states that if you are lucky enough to live in like oregon <laughs> uh and you know the law uh then uh you can definitely I don't know, to give an example, maybe argue with the police chief that his wife, who also doesn't have a job, is technically a sex worker. So drop this fucking charge. Um, like, <laughs> uh, so there definitely is a ways to go. But I think that very much when we talk about um, liberation or things catching up, all of our liberation is tied together, right? So especially like right now, uh, if you like, there's kind of like a level of like, we should all be fucking giving a shit about black lives because that like for years and years and years. And I don't know, maybe like centuries, um, uh, black folks have been getting fucked over left and right and murdered for no reason. So if you can't, like, I don't understand the disconnect in that it, to me, it's the same, right? If life has value, life has fucking value. Uh, so that means a prostitute's life has value. That means that a black person's life has value. 
Uh, so if you believe that, it has to fall in line. My hope is like uh, within, <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to say this. My hope is like a moderate crumbling of society within the next year to two years. Uh, it's happening. That, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, uh, that allows for um, a deepening our understanding of and a re-envisioning uh, the role that police play in society, which hopefully is none. Uh, and also um, really considering what is criminalization? Because like, even where I come from, Oregon, uh, there you can buy weed at the grocery store. Like there's weed everywhere, but have we let people out of prison that got arrested on a marijuana charge two years ago? No, nope. no, we didn't do that. But Chad over here can, you know, buy his edibles. Yeah. Like. They're definitely, if you're working towards one, you gotta be working towards, you know, like they're all connected. And so we all need to be working towards that. Yeah. Does and that make sense, Eddie? No, 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 it makes total sense. I, I, the other thing that I, I guess I've noticed, you know, I, I've watched a lot of SVU. Um, <laughs> I might've stopped like a, like maybe two seasons ago uh, because it just went on forever. It, occasionally I'll hit, we'll hit like a, an old episode coming on TV. And it's just, and that show's been around for like, what, 18 seasons, something like that, 18 years. And it seems that so much has changed from that first, from that first, from 18 years ago, 15, 18, 20 years ago, um, about the way in which uh, these topics are addressed to today. Yeah. And the other thing that I wonder is that, you know, this maybe is also the algorithm and the bubble, you know? Uh, I see a I see a lot of people that are more open uh, to different lifestyles, to different occupations, um, etc. And I kind of fear that maybe that's just because that's who I happen to virtually hang out with. Um, oh. And people not in that same bubble are still stuck. You know. You know, I think that that I think both of those things are simultaneously true. I think that. But I also think that what you're saying, because a lot of times I'm shocked when I go places or hang out with other people and I'm like, oh shit, that's what you believe? Woo! Uh, <laughs> we don't live in the same place um, or we don't hang out with the same people. But then also there are some things like when SVU started, this idea of um, a violent crime or these like uh, shit that happens specifically to sex workers, it was very much framed in the context of Captain Savaho. It was very much uh, 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 like a white knight uh, and uh, like a literal actual white knight. Um, you know, Elliot Stabler coming in um, and and had this idea of like. Um, that sex work was something that people needed to be saved from. It was something that they were doing because they didn't want to. Um, and now I think that there is this understanding uh, that's actually what's letting a lot of people go to college. That's what is feeding a lot of folks kids. Uh, and like to ask you a pointed question, Eddie, like right now, truly, uh, I don't know what your life is, but if you could make an extra $300 a month, just anonymously posting videos of your feet and sending them to the people, would you? Ooh, well. Just here's these three hundred dollars, Eddie. That is an easy three hundred dollars, and and anonymous, anonymously, probably yes. Uh, however, I happen to work for a Catholic high school, and um, <laughs> I think there's probably a clause in there somewhere in my contract. Yeah. 
yeah. that says that I yeah. ought not do that. Um, so that's kind of like a, yeah. But, but you bring up a good point, you know, like, and I, I very clearly remember, you know, like I had a, a few friends in college that were very open about the fact it's like, yeah, I work at a strip club on the weekends because that's what pays my tuition, you know? And there wasn't, there wasn't any, any shame in it. There wasn't any, you know, like them trying to hide it because it was something bad. It was just like, I have a job and my job pays me well. And I'm able to further my my life and my career because of it, you know? And I think the more society starts to transition into that idea of like, sex work is just another job. It doesn't have to carry the stigma behind it, you know? And, I, and um, the other thing is, this is, and this is my worry as a, as a dad, as a teacher. Um, I know that I have some former students, uh, girls that have graduated. Uh, I teach all girls, by the way. So uh, students who have graduated, um, who I hear or I, they've actually told me that they're uh, getting money for pictures, uh, like you're talking about, something like just feet, and um, and part of me worries not about what they're putting out there, but worries about predators, people who can find them, uh, who might not understand boundaries. Uh, who might not understand, you know, these ideas of consent, um, like, like you've talked about. And I just, I just kind of like, I guess I, I worry about that, you know, that, that element out there. From the other well, side. I think, I, I think also like, it's a layered thing, right? Um, because like, if we're going to talk about these things, then also we need to talk about entitlement and we need to talk about rape culture. Uh, and we need to talk about the ways in which that factors in. Um, and, uh, and I understand what you're saying and in that, like a, a concern that people can be exploited, but also, um, you can be exploited working at Burger King. You, mm. you know, like, um, so, so I think that it's a layered thing and, and I understand that. And it's also something that like, I'm very happy that there are legal protections within our country that, um, it's not legal to be sharing or to be posting photos if you're not over 18. It's not like that, that, I, that I am grateful for that level of it. Um, it's also something that like it is easy money and it's something that people can kind of um, trip and fall into and not know what they're getting into. Um, the, the horror community is pretty fantastic. Uh, in terms of uh, having websites and having apps where folks can uh, say their location and how long their appointment is and when they'll be done. And if they do not report back, uh, their um, address is sent to the nearest um, police uh, station. So like there's there's kind of like some different connections that are in there that are that are some protections. I think it's also something too that we have to we have to work on changing our understanding of what sex work is. Um, my mom asked me specifically what, one of the things that she asked me is like, well, what will you do if your niece and nephew like found like some of your modeling online? What would you do if they, um, they went to the website for one of the stores that you model for? Um, and I was like, well, one, why are my niece and nephew seeking me out? Uh, we're going to need a therapist for, uh, and two, um, what I hope they would take away is, 
Uh, oh, wow. Damn. My auntie is strong and confident in who they are. Uh, and showing that there can be like one, there's nothing wrong with being attracted to a fat person, uh, a fat, queer, non-binary person. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with being a fat, queer, non-binary person. So I think that, you know, like it, it's those layers mm-hmm. that, yeah. that we have to kind of tackle together. There's a couple of comments here that I want to read out. One saying, uh, check out the funk erotic trans aesthetics and black sexual cultures by L.H. Stallings. She even broadens what sex work is to include people in the academy who study sex, sex work, etc. And then there was another comment that uh, asks a question. So they say, as a big boy in the alphabet mafia, I feel like I have to brace myself to getting shot down by the model-esque bros or accepted because I'm being fetishized. Is there mm. a time where either Roxy or Eddie has this shining situation that changed your thought process towards your own body in a positive way? And I want to ask that of you, Roxy. Uh, do you want to go first, Eddie? <laughs> um, I have to reread that question to exactly, I mean, um, to, to figure out where we're, where that's, that's yeah. going. Basically what they're asking is, you know, like they, as a, as a, you know, larger person, (laughs) as a big boy, as they put it, uh, is uh, he either has to accept the fact that he's going to be rejected by people that look like models or accept the fact that the only reason they like him is because he's being fetishized for being. That is it. That's a tough one. Um, You know, because and and I guess there's, you know, there's a self-esteem issue there. Having always been like of this, this kind of size kind of like has given me like a low self-esteem. Uh, so when somebody does find me attractive, well, I'm like, oh, oh, me? Wow, really? You know? Yeah. Um, and so it would take a lot of, it's, I think it's taken a lot of maturity for me. You know, you know I'm 44 now um, to figure out that, um, that to, to look beyond that, mm-hmm. you know, to look beyond the, uh, oh, you do find me attractive, so I must have to find you attractive back, you know, or oh. I'm you know, I must have to appreciate this uh, and to move beyond that into like, no, you shouldn't like me for me, not for whatever you're seeing, too. And I joke about that, too. I joke. I have poems where I joke about like, uh, hey, my eyes are up here, you know, no, exact, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to look at my stomach, you know, stuff like that. Um, so it's 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 a it's a it's, it's something that's taken a long time. Uh, and I think the, the, the person who posted this um, is relatively young to me. Um, and I think that just that just takes time and experience to be able to get past uh, that idea. Yeah, I think- it is, I'm not going to say I'd say it's really nice to be appreciated, though. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and I think the, the, question, the question was, like, was there a moment where, like, you were able to change your thought process from, like, I'm not going to be shut down by somebody who is model-esque and I'm not, you know, if they do like me, it's not because of a fetish. They like me for me, you know, like where were you able to change that into Nothing a positive? There yet. I think I still get, I think I still get shut down by the model-esque, you know, I still get, I still look at uh, advertisements for clothes and I'm like, that's never going to look good on me. Mm. Roxy? You know, I, I, yeah. Why do you have, why do you have to have that kind of a, uh, that model there? You know, that, um, that 32 uh, pant waist model. Uh, I think 
again, it's a layered thing because being a human is a fucking layered thing. Um, because there is this level of like, yes, self-esteem, but also like, you can like yourself as much as the day is long. But if you're trying to date other people, you can't date yourself. Like you should before you date <laughs> other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, if we're going to go out and move and live and breathe in the world, I can't act like um, my physical personhood is not a part of that. Um, and for a long time, I, my thinking about it was like, God, it must just take such an outside the box person to find me attractive. Like it must be very, you must have to look for a long time. Um, and then what I realized is like, no, fuck that. Like, I'd like, like I'm pretty okay. Now I'm not for everyone. And that was a big moment realizing like I'm not for everyone Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to be for everyone uh and also I gave up a lot of myself trying to be for everyone um but if you're asking for a specific moment honestly and uh though I am honest about being a sex worker though I am I am honest about these things it is not for everyone uh, you should definitely make sure whoever you are, that you have consistent mental health care or resources, uh, because it is definitely something that is triggering, uh, and can be, especially for anyone who has trauma. Um, but for me, uh, I tripped and fell into becoming a sex worker for two reasons. One, because I was trying to be on Tinder and the third person in a row asked me if I'd ever been a fin dom. Uh, Cause apparently I just give off like bitchy vibes. Uh, confidence. You give up confidence. Is that it? Yeah. Right. Uh, and then the third person in a row, I was like, well, I, like, I don't know what that is, but I can Google it real fast. Um, and I did. And I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. Um, and I had had a bunch of friends who were dancers or, um, uh, uh, escorts. And, um, uh, they were like, you know, like, if you ever wanted to dance, like this, this club would hire you. Or if you wanted to do this, like you could. And I was like, not me, mine that. Um, and uh, you think that, but then like, when you put a dollar sign by how many minutes someone can talk to you, it does change things. Um, and I think that I felt like, like that was a part of it. Now, I'm not saying like becoming a sex worker made me realize that I'm attractive because that's not accurate at all. Um, but I truly thought that the idea of uh, like me dancing, like was there's no way that I could make it in a club. There's no way, like that's just not gonna happen. Uh, and the only thing stopping me was me. Like, because, because uh, I can, I like, I did like that, that just wasn't true. So I think that there has to be space for a layer of, um, uh, yes, work on your self-esteem. Yes. Grow yourself. Also realize that you are allowed to have the sex that you want. It is not a compromise to be with you whatever, whatever you look like, whatever your, your beauty ideals are, or what you want, like, it's not a compromise. Uh, Sonia Renee Taylor's famous uh, poem, and now movement, the body is not an apology, is an incredible resource now, but also that piece, like, the body is not an apology. My body 
is not an apology. Your body is not an apology. You, that's not a thing that we need to do. We're not for everybody. And um, for that person, I would kind of realize that you don't have to settle for someone not liking you or for someone fetishizing you um, because there are people who will like you. You're not for everyone. Uh, and you might have to move a little to, <laughs> you know, like go out of your, your comfort zone. Um, but I think that everybody should move a little and get out of their comfort zone. Now, how did, cause I, I think at some point we got to get back to poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Do we though? Do we really? <laughs> uh, how did the, did, do you think that there was something in the poetry community, be it in Eugene, be it in the greater poetry community, the, the larger you know, the national scene or whatnot that um, that helped out your understanding of these issues. And I'm going to say, I'm gonna, let me say one more little preface is that one of the things that helped me in my own body positivity was being around other poets that had similar builds to mine who just did to me, they were like, they were so confident. It was like, they just don't care. Uh, but they were being so confident in what they were wearing and how they were looking um, and how they were approaching the stage. And I was like, you know what? I can wear that t-shirt now if I want to. Um, and, and, and I don't know if that experience is, is uh, you know, you've been in, in the scene a little bit longer uh, than I have. Um, I think that... Um... It wasn't seeing other people who looked like me because for me, it had to be like um, deeper and more psychological in terms of I had to understand that there wasn't anything inherently wrong with me and um, hearing other people's work, hearing other people's sincerity, hearing like, I mean, I see like Io is like commenting right on there. Uh, Io is one of the most attractive fucking humans on this planet. He is absolutely gorgeous. Um, but he also has poems about consistently not feeling like enough or feeling like too too much. Um, and to hear from that person that you think is a model, like, oh, you fucked up in all the same ways. Like that, <laughs> that, that for me was more transformative than seeing people who looked like me. Um, I will say, um, shout out to Akeem Rollins and the Listen Queer Slam that has happened most recently. Um, uh, specifically seeing other queer trans folks and hearing their experience has been very helpful for me feeling comfortable in myself. But um, I, it's been, for me, it was like the internal work to then get to the outside part of things mm -hmm. that helped. And just like, I love sincerity. Like, I don't care about polish. I care about honesty. I want that. I want the heart. I want the gooey center. Um, and then realizing that we're all fucking gooey center. Mm -hmm. Like the coolest person you know is gooey center. And if someone isn't, I don't want to hang out with you. <laughs> There's just mush. Gooey yeah. center. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that because you shared some poems at the beginning of, of this segment and I, you know, watched you perform on the listen, 
Um, and there is a lot about talking about, uh, about trauma, you know, and these experiences that we go through. So what, what do you feel like is the role of, you know, you, you pose this about the relationship between trauma and comedy. Um, and I immediately think of, so we had Roscoe Burnham's on here a few weeks ago and he has his new show, Traumedy on um on amazon prime that is that it's that marrying of like let's be funny haha and now but wait we're gonna we're gonna talk about something you know so how does that relationship mesh when it comes to the literary community when it comes to slam when it comes to any of that kind of stuff um well uh okay so i thought for a long time that my only strength as a writer was being a funny poet so i thought that i had to write funny poems um and like it's okay to be a lit like if you if you have to then you're like fuck this shit um you know if it just comes out that feels better um but I thought that and like funny poems do not consistently score well in slam they don't uh we often reward trauma porn we often you know like the most upsetting thing gets the most points um that's a thing that happens um, and, uh, Nikki Burian, who is a poet out of, um, Portland, they have, have talked and performed extensively about like, it's okay to have happy poems. It's like, you know, like, and for me, I, I think that being a person is such a layered experience. Like it's, it's fucking terrible to be a person, but it's also extraordinary. It's always both. And in college, I was in this year-long program called the Kid Tutorial that is a creative writing um, program that is really just a waste of money. Uh, but one of the things that I got to do was spend a year studying and exploring uh, in poetry and creative nonfiction uh, and prose, the relationship between uh, trauma or tragedy and comedy. Um, and they are best friends uh, they go so well together and they go so well together because shit that is really funny is actually funny because it's, it's, um, like a pressure valve. It's like a pressure release mm. that lets you breathe because things are so real. And in the same way, humans cannot just handle constant hard things being thrown at us. We need <laughs> like, that's too much weight. Um, or like in the same way that like, um, high intensity interval training is, is, is you can build more muscle doing that because it gives you bricks in between, right? You're going real, real hard. And then you stop, you rest a little, and then you go back to going hard. Um, comedy is the same kind of muscle, you know, like if, if you're, if all you are is funny, then there's no substance, there's no realness. Uh, and I'm not gonna dog anyone that only does sad poems because like my like my cryy Pisces heart is like huge for sad poems, but also like um comedy lets us connect in a different way. So to me, they're constantly related. Or like um my my favorite poets are poets that that blend that like uh daniel garcia is one of the funniest motherfuckers that i know and you wouldn't know that about daniel if all you ever heard were like some of daniel's poems on on uh, button or on the internet wherever the internet is um but um but daniel's hilarious 
but but also you know like that those upsetting things I don't want to say they deepen our humanity but there's such an inescapable relationship there um that when I found out I didn't have to just be funny I could be honest and uh that honesty sometimes is real fucking upsetting and really hard also that honest can be really fucking funny too because it's real yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely I think it's that balance of you know like you can you can take a moment like why is why is comedy funny because it's rooted in realness right you know and you can say something that's like hella real and like really pushes you but also makes you laugh and it's this moment of 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 humanizing it you know and like you said it's like a pressure valve we're like oh okay i'm ready for more let's keep going let's keep going well you know a few times when we've had open mics where there's comics there also um which actually i'm not a fan of because they take more time but anyway <laughs> uh, afterwards when we're all hanging out uh, sometimes they're sadder than the poets you know uh, they're dealing with some more stuff and their their way of getting through it is through the comedy maybe they're masked some of them are masking um but uh i've just you know i, I just think about we're we're both having our trauma poets comics Mm-hmm. and we're reacting to it in two different ways mm-hmm. yeah. yeah um and you, of course you do have your crossovers you have your funny poets too yeah uh, there's a lot of you know a lot of comics you know thrive off of like self-deprecating humor you know and it's a way to deal with their own insecurities and things like that we have to we we have to start wrapping up um so i'm going to I want to ask this last question because i fucking love it and we're on the subject of comics anyway so uh, on the subject of stand-up comedy, Roxy, why are most cis, hetero, straight, white male comics trash? Question mark. Oh. <laughs> well, they've had too much privilege to go through enough hard shit to help them learn to tell a real joke. Point blank, okay. period. <laughs> Punto final. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I could elaborate, but also like I stand by it. There you go. Um, <laughs> and then, well, since that was a quick answer, we got one more because I also love this one. Uh, ageism within dating. Why are you hoping that your mom gets a life-changing dick pic? Um, wow, this is really, this is amazing. Uh, so my mom is 70. And probably like six months ago, she started dating. My dad died three years ago and they had been married for 36 years. Um, and he was the love of her life. Also, she's the best version of herself now that she's ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, like she's cooler now than ever before. She's amazing. Also, um, one of the things that, again, everyone's liberation is tied into it. Uh, we don't talk about the ways in which like over 40, um, we discard non-men. They can't be sexy. They can't be interested in life. Um, and I was actually at a comedy show and I was telling, um, just, you know, hanging out like you do backstage. And my mom was there because she likes to hear me tell dick jokes. Uh, and, uh, (laughs) and she, she, so she's there, you know, like eating her meal backstage with the comedians. Um, and I was talking about her and like receiving this life-changing dick pic. Um, (laughs) and one of the comedians said like, God, that's so hilarious and disgusting. 
and my mom, like all, cause she's like little, she's whittle. She will whittle. Uh, she's tiny, she's five, two, all like 70 years of her age and all like five feet and two inches reared up. She's like, why the fuck you think that's funny? Huh? Tell me straight white man. Why do you think it's funny? Why do you think it's funny that I have sex at 70? What you think I'm not deserving of uh, dick pics? You think that this is, you think that, uh, tell me, tell me exactly what you think is happening with my vagina. That's so comedic. And I think that it's just one, which like also get it mom. Mm -hmm. Uh, But truly like we get to a point where people aren't attractive or useful to us. And we're just like, oh, and now you go over there. They're disposable. And, uh, and the more that we realize like, well, actually none of us are disposable, come on back, the, the more important that is. And I think that, you know, like, uh, like whoever you are, you deserve to feel good unless you're fucking garbage, in which case you don't. Um, but unless you're Hitler or Trump. <laughs> yeah. It, you've made your bed deal with it. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, and a part of that is that like, if being intimate with someone feels good, then you, you should be able to feel like you shouldn't be ashamed of that. And if not being with someone, if you're asexual, that shouldn't make you weird. You know, like we shouldn't be like, oh, I no longer have value for you because I don't want to have sex with you. So I'm going to discard you. And that's what that 28 year old straight white male comedian did to my mom. And she was like, hey, 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 I don't have to have value to you to be valuable. Mm. I couldn't think of a better way to end our Pride Month series than this conversation right here. Uh, to, I mean, to steal a quote from, from Mac, all ages, all races, all genders, all sizes, everybody should yep. be celebrated unless yep. you're trash. <laughs> In which case, get out. Uh, well, Roxy, thank you so much for this this phenomenal conversation. Uh, it's yeah, a very enlightening conversation for a lot of people. Uh, the comments the comments speak for themselves. I'm sopping. Great advice. This is good. So good. This has been so wonderful. Oh my God, I I feel this. Why are you calling me out? Etc. 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 Been a lively comment time on here. Probably one of the more lively ones that that we've seen in a while. Uh, mm-hmm. in the comments. Uh, people saying, oh, I felt that. I felt that. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad. Which also is like, that should be a layer of it too. Like, if you felt that, then this is for you. And then like, clearly we should talk about these things more. You speak for the people, Roxy. So when are you running for office? (laughs) (laughs) Literally never. (laughs) But I will Uh, burn some shit down. Yay! All right. Well, on that, um, we're going to jump out of here because it would be our honor and privilege for you to share one more poem uh, to close us out. Uh, so if you please. Yes, I would love to. I would love to. Uh, okay, I'm going to pull this bad boy up again. Okay. Uh, uh, content warning uh, for dysphoria. I think that my penis is like Groundhog Day. And when I say that, I don't mean that both my film, that both the film and my penis are technically millennials. And I don't mean, I don't mean that because it's scared of its shadow, though it often is. When I say that my penis is like Groundhog Day, 
What I mean is that sometimes when I look between my legs, I feel like everything is starting over. I mean that sometimes my penis is a penis and sometimes my penis is a pussy. And though I'm a fan of that plot twist, apparently when combined with these titties, it just really confuses folks almost as much as a marmot determining winter. When I say that my penis is like Groundhog Day, I mean, how big does my dick have to be for you to see its shadow before you see my tits? Asking for a friend. Spoiler alert, the friend is me. I mean that my pronouns from henceforth will be the first person plural we, as in the royal we, as in we, my penis, pussy, tits, and I are non-binary. And I know that's confusing because when I say my penis is like Groundhog Day, what I mean is I don't get sad when people misgender me. Just disappointed because I have trouble believing I am who I say I am too, but I want to. What I mean is, do you think Puxatawney Phil wants to be a spectacle or that he's just hoping to make it to spring? When I say my penis is like Groundhog Day, I mean, sometimes I'm afraid I'm no more real than a shadow, a poorly defined simulacrum of a creature I recognize less and less every day. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, that most of the time I'm just a scared animal looking out at the sheet of ice before me and behind it the cold frozen cave I have forced myself into and I don't know which one is safer. I mean that global warming has reduced the efficacy of Groundhog Day as a predictor of spring to 39% and the climate of the Western hemisphere outside my cave reduced life expectancy of a queer trans person from 30 to 35 years. I am 36. What I mean is, I wonder if flowers have contingency plans. When I say that my penis is like Groundhog Day, what I mean is that I would like to be more than comedy gold or a popular tourist attraction. I mean that one day I would, we would like to be a home. Thank you, uh, Blah, Chibi, Eddie, for having me. Roxy Allen, everybody. Roxy motherfucking Allen. <laughs> Roxy, if anyone is interested in finding your work, um, uh, getting more to know about you, purchasing, seeing some things, donating towards your cause, whatever it may be, where can they go? Um, mix Foxy Roxy, full of moxie, because I thought that you had to be witty on Instagram. Uh, but it's just MX and then Foxy Roxy, full of moxie. Um, or you can just get a hold of me uh, on Facebook. There you go. Roxy Allen on Facebook or MX Foxy, Foxy Roxy, Roxy full, full Moxie. Boom. Okay. Got it. On the Instagrams. Uh, so we've definitely tagged them in everything that we've been posting. So 
thank you so much for contributing to this conversation and being with us tonight. Uh, I do have to say, you look like you have a marvelous tan, like you've been sunbathing in the South or something. I mean, I have been. It's almost like I was reading Gigi Bella's book, Big Feelings, by a pool today. It, mm, a pool in South Texas. Plug for Gigi yeah. Bella too, all right. There you go, plugs and plugs. Roxy Allen, everybody, again, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, um, we will be back Education next week. Educational and uh, cathartic, uh, thank you. Right here. Uh, so we will be back next week. Eddie, who do we have joining us next week? Oh my gosh. So I've been on a panel or like two panels and like readings with uh, with this person, with Carol Carolina Hinojosa Cisneros, mm. an amazing poet, uh, writer, um, tweeter, um, you know, just all over, good person. And uh, next month, uh, we're gonna focus a little bit on um, publishing and all other aspects of poetry uh, from different perspectives. Uh, so we're bringing on uh, Caro first uh, with us. Uh, so she'll be here and we're gonna put up more information about her uh, and the blog page so you can um, so you can have a little preview and you'll know uh, what to expect or someone what to expect because you don't know where it's gonna go. We didn't know where this conversation was gonna go. Uh, we don't know what's gonna happen next. You know. This is one of the beautiful things. It's, it, it truly is words and shit. We're here to talk about poetry. We're here to talk about words. We're here to talk about all sorts of shit, you know? So thank you for this conversation. Looking forward to Carolina next week. We have a phenomenal lineup uh, for the month of, what, where are we? July, time is a construct. Uh, we have a phenomenal lineup for the month of July. So if you want more information about what we're doing, who's coming up, you want to make sure you get all the notifications, make sure you like the Blah Poetry Spot on Facebook, B-L-A-H, the Blah Poetry Spot. And same on Instagram, Write Art Out. Follow Write Art Out, W-R-I-T-A-R-T-O-U-T on Instagram so you can get all the information about what's coming up in the future because this is just the beginning. So this conversation and so many others that we've had before, if you've missed them, they're gonna, they are on our podcast or coming up on our podcast. You know what? We're just trying to spread the good word of poetry to everyone out there. Um, so thank you again to Roxy. Thank you to Eddie. Uh, my name is Chibi. Y'all, thank you for joining us. Good night. Take care of yourselves. Be safe. Bye.